Amen. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And verse 14 through 15, we read, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, and he said to them this one vital question. But who do you say that I am? Today, across this nation and around the world, that same question that Christ asked to his disciples will attempt to be answered by preachers around the world. In many churches today, most sermons will present Jesus Christ as the one who can help you gain victory over the sin in your life or gain victory over too much weight on your body. Most sermons today will present Jesus Christ as the one who can help you get out of financial debt or help you get over your low self-esteem. Across this nation, Christ will be presented as the one who can pull you out of whatever trial you're going through or the one who can restore your family and those broken relationships with your friends. There'll even be sermons today on how Christ can help you figure out your spiritual gift or calling in your life. But this morning, saints, I want to present Jesus Christ in a way that's a little unusual for most preachers preaching today in the broader scheme of evangelicalism. This morning, saints, I don't want to present to you the Jesus Christ who can fix your marriage, in which he can, the Jesus Christ who can help you get out of financial debt, The Jesus Christ who can help you gain victory over the sin in your life or the too much weight on your body. But I want to present to you the Jesus Christ, the living and son of God. Present to you Jesus Christ as God. I want us this morning to pull back the veil. And I want us to remove our sandals and and cover our heads I want us to remove all of the benefits that we receive from the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, which are all wonderful. I want us to think about Jesus apart from the incarnation and his redemptive work. This morning, saints, I want us to see the Son of God in all of his glory and majesty. There are times when we can lose this picture of who God is. Who the second person of the triune God is. We can think about what he has done in salvation, but we don't often think about who he is in his person, in his deity. We need to see God for who he is in his glorious majesty. And to do that, saints, I want us to turn to one of the most vivid records in all of the Bible of a vision of God. Isaiah chapter 6. While you're turning there, while you're finding that wonderful chapter in the book of Isaiah, I want to help you understand the context. Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century. Assyria was the dominant power of the day. And the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah are speaking about the wickedness of Judah and Jerusalem and about this coming judgment that will uh, come to the people. 
It is when we arrive at the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah where God reassures the prophet Isaiah that in spite of the wickedness amongst the people, amongst the nation, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is the king. That the message that the Lord gave to Isaiah is true indeed. And God recommissions Isaiah's task to be the one who will deliver God's words to the people. It is when we arrive at Isaiah chapter 6, we see saints, one of the most glorious yet terrifying visions of God depicted in all of Scripture. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, the Word of the Lord says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one to the, uh, called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Saints, you may be seated. This morning, I just have two points I want us to consider from these first five verses of the chapter Isaiah. And number one is Isaiah's vision. Point number one, Isaiah's vision. And point number two, Isaiah's response. Point one, Isaiah's vision. And point two, Isaiah's response. And in this, we will see how we are to see God, but also we are to see how we are to respond to who God is. So let's look at the first point that we have, which is Isaiah's vision. Isaiah's vision. Isaiah's vision. And saints, in this point, um, I have three sub-points that will help us better understand this marvelous vision. So we have one point that has uh, three subpoints, and it actually might not have three subpoints. I just let's just say a various amount of subpoints because I might be inaccurate in my counting. But let's consider the first subpoint: the fact of the vision. This is the first subpoint: the fact of the vision. Again, saints, if you have a Bible, look at verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Saints, the first observation that we must consider is this. Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord. Before we can do any explanation, before we can do any exegesis of the text, before we can draw out the practical implications of the text, we must marvel and reflect On what verse 1 says, Isaiah saw the Lord. There are times, saints, when you are 
reading various texts in the Bible, you come across a text that warrants you to not go any further, that warrants maybe a pause, that warrants maybe a head shake and, and, and you being moved in what you are reading. It warrants maybe a gasp. Saints, this is one of those times. What a sight this was for the prophet Isaiah. There are some of us that have seen many marvelous and glorious things in our lives, whether that be a, a monument, whether that be a building, whether that be maybe even a celebrity, a person. Uh, me personally, I've, I've been with my mother and it was one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life. Uh, she wanted to go to the top of the Empire State Building. And when I was at the top of the Empire State Building at night, uh, all of New York City was lit up. And that was terrifying for me, but also that was, that was glorious and marvelous to see all of New York City lit up. I've walked uh, the Golden Gate Bridge with my then fiance, which was also the scariest thing in my life. Now, not only am I walking over water, but I'm about to propose to this woman. I stood in front of the White House. But the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. Out of all what we have seen, saints, White House, top of the Empire State Building, Golden Gate Bridge, trips all over and around the world, the people who we've seen, all of that is nothing compared to Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And whom did Isaiah see exactly? We must ask, whom did he see? Did he see the Holy Spirit? Did he see the Father? Did he see uh, that one God who subsists in three persons? Whom did he see? Well, saints, we have every reason to believe that the one whom Isaiah saw was the pre-incarnate Christ. This vision of Isaiah, the one he was looking at was the pre-incarnate Christ, whom Isaiah saw was the Son of God before he took on flesh. This is known, saints, as a Christophany. And the saints, we have good warrant to believe that the one whom Isaiah saw was the pre-incarnate Christ. For uh, John tells us in chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them and spoke of him. First John, uh, John chapter 12 comments on what Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6. This was the pre-incarnate Christ. This was the one whom was going to take on flesh and redeem the sins of his people before he did all of those things. This was Jesus Christ before he took on the title of Jesus Christ. This one whom Isaiah saw was the second person of the blessed Trinity, the son of God, before the birth, before the ministry, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before the ascension of Christ. Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned in heaven, the son of God, the second person of the blessed Trinity triune which leads to our second sub point and that is this what is the manner or nature of this vision what is the manner or nature of this vision meaning saints did isaiah see the lord with the physical eye uh, was isaiah brought into a trance 
Was I, uh, was this all a dream for Isaiah? What was the manner and vision or, uh, manner, um, and nature of this vision? Well, saints, uh, that is a, a sermon in and of itself. And we don't need to survey the scriptures to find out the nature and manner of Isaiah's vision. But we do know this. Isaiah saw the Lord. We don't know if it was a dream, if it was a, a vision, if it was a trance or any of those things. But we know one thing, that the scriptures is clear. Isaiah saw the Lord. But we must know, saints, that even though Isaiah saw the Lord, he didn't see the Lord as he truly is in himself. Even though Isaiah saw this wonderful vision of the Lord, we, we must note that Isaiah didn't see the fullness of who the second person of the Trinity is. Just as you are looking at me right now, you see my entire, you see the totality of my being. You see my blemishes, you see all of me. And you can handle all of me, right? I'm not, I'm not going, you, at a sight of Isaiah, you are not going to die. That's not the case with God. We can't look at the fullness of who God is. So this vision was not a vision of the Lord and who he is in and of himself. For no man can comprehend that. But also, saints, we must note that the scriptures are clear that God is invisible. God is invisible. We read in John 4 that God is spirit. God is spirit. No man can see God for whom he truly is, as John 1.18 tells us. In our confession, chapter 2, paragraph 1, of God and the Holy Trinity, our confession says, The Lord our God is but one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who hath immortality, and hear this, dwelling in the light, dwelling in the light, with no man can approach onto. Who can see this God for who he is? Whatever the nature of this seeing is, saints, we know that Isaiah didn't cast his eyes on the Lord and see God for who he truly is in himself, for that will be fatal for Isaiah. So what is the nature of Isaiah's vision? If, if, if we can't say, if we don't know if it's a dream or a trance, if we know that Isaiah didn't see the Lord for who he is in and of himself, for no man can comprehend that, what is the nature of this vision? Consider the words of John Calvin. It is asked, how can Isaiah see God who is a spirit and therefore cannot be seen with bodily eyes? Nay, more, since the understandings of men cannot rise to the boundless heights, how can he be seen in a visible shape? How can, how can Isaiah see this vision of the Lord and, and, and have this, the way scripture depicts it as having a physical shape? There's great descriptions of what Isaiah sees. Here what he says. But we ought to be aware of that when God exhibited himself to the view of the fathers, he never appeared such as he actually is. God never appeared as he actually is, but such as the capacity of men can receive. Though men may be said to creep on the ground or at least dwell far below the heavens, there is no absurdity in supposing that God comes down to them in such a manner as to cause some kind of mirror to reflect the rays of his glory. 
There was therefore, and hear this, there was therefore exhibited to Isaiah such a form as enabled him, according to his capacity, to perceive the inconceivable majesty of God, and thus his attributes to God, a throne, a robe, and a bodily appearance. That was a lot. But what uh, Calvin is basically saying is the Lord appeared in a way in which Isaiah could apprehend what he was seeing. The Lord comes down, this divine condescension of the Lord, and meets Isaiah where he is at to show Isaiah whom he is. Yes, he didn't see the Lord for who he is in and of himself. But does that mean that the God whom we serve is unable to condescend to finite creatures and reveal to us whom he really is. Never be saints. And although the prophet Isaiah cannot see God for who he is in and of himself, the Lord discloses himself in a manner where Isaiah can understand. Similar to when you guys talk to your babies, when you talk to your grandchildren or nieces and nephew or whatever, whoever that's small, when you talk to them, you talk to them in language that they can understand. Mind you, the language that you talk to them, and I'm going to be uh, guilty of this when my son is born, but I don't even know if they understand what you are saying. But you speak to them in a language where they can understand, right? You condescend to them. This is what's happening in this vision. God is condescending to Isaiah's finite limitabil- uh, capabilities and his, uh, uh, his limitations to what he can uh, apprehend. The Lord manifests himself in such a way that Isaiah can receive it. The Lord stoops down to Isaiah's limited capacity in order for Isaiah to see God for who he is. Now let's look at the third subpoint, and that is the content of the vision. We have the fact of the vision. Isaiah saw the Lord. What is the manner that Isaiah saw the Lord? Well, we don't know. But what is now the content of the vision? What is the stuff of the vision? What did he actually see now? And this is the glorious truth of of Isaiah chapter 6. What did he see? We know that the one whom Isaiah sees is the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ. We have that laid out. We know that the Lord didn't fully reveal who uh, he was to Isaiah, for no man can comprehend that. Rather, he revealed himself in such a way that Isaiah can understand. So, How did the Lord uh, condescend to Isaiah? How did he bring himself to a place where Isaiah can comprehend, apprehend? Look again at verse 1, saints. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Again, saints, this should cause us to pause. This description of who our Lord is should cause us to gasp. It should cause us to marvel. It should cause us to immediately drop to our knees and pray to the one whom Isaiah is seeing in this vision. We ought to be in awe of this vision that Isaiah saw. What a majestic and glorious description we have of our Lord. First, Isaiah sees what he, uh, first Isaiah says that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He sees this one sitting upon a throne. And saints, what a proper description that is of our Lord, is it not? For our God is the king. Notice how I said is the king and not 
a king. He does not derive his kingship from a past lineage. He is intrinsically in and of himself the king. No one anointed him to be the king. He wasn't a prince and then became a king. He was always eternally everlasting and forevermore will be the king. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler of all things. Presidents begin and end their terms. Kings die and another is raised up. But our Lord's rule and reign is unmatched. He's unmatched in his rule and reign. There are those in this uh, world who have great and extreme political power, who can pass laws and do things that we can't do, who to us are giants, but to God are midgets. They have no power in the sight of the Lord. The Lord gave them their kingship. The Lord gave them their president seat. Their rule and reign will end one day, saints. Our Lord's kingdom is everlasting. His kingship shall have no end. He doesn't serve a two-year term, a four-year term, an eight-year term. He doesn't go for as long as he can and then die. His throne will remain on high forever, and he will be sitting there, him alone and no one else. Isaiah didn't see the Lord sitting there. Um, as so many preachers describe the Lord, who's waiting for someone to, to open the door as he knocks at the, the door of their heart, waiting and wishing for them to come in or he can come in. Waiting and wishing that, that someone will, 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 will open the door of their heart as he knocks. Isaiah didn't see the Lord who's sad because we've sinned against him. For our Lord is impassable. He is simple. But saints, Isaiah saw the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He didn't see, as many preachers like to say now, the, the sissified Jesus. He saw the Son of God in all of his glory, sitting on the throne on high. The one who's sitting on the throne, saints, is our Lord. And saints, this is a fitting picture, a proper picture of who our God is. The King. The one and only king. And notice, saints, added to Isaiah's seeing of a throne. He sees the throne, not low, not low, but he sees the throne that's high and lifted up. High and lifted up. Now, saints, <clears throat> let me do a little bit of theology here. We aren't to think that Isaiah sees this big throne and it's really high above the heavens, above the sky. But rather, Isaiah is ascribing the being of our Lord and who he is. The Lord didn't reveal himself to Isaiah in order for the Lord to show Isaiah that he sits on a throne and is very, very high. For God is not physically sitting on a throne. God is not physically on a throne sitting on high. Rather, God, the Lord, is revealing to Isaiah his power and authority as the king. Sitting on the throne depicts that I am the king. And sitting on high and lifted up says, I have power and authority. I have rule and reign. I have supreme power and authority over everything and everyone. The infinite height of the Lord's throne reveals his rule and reign over all the earth, all of the universe. 
As Isaiah 10, uh, Psalm 103, 19 tells us, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Saints, God's rule over everything and everyone. He rules over everything and everyone. He is the king. He determines how our lives should be run and ran. And practically speaking, what this means for us, saints, is you don't live autonomously. You don't live under your own kingship and law. No one does. But there is one saints, whether you like it or not, who rules over you, who has given you his law, his holy and righteous law, which reflects his holy and righteous character. Obey him. He is the king. He's given you his law, his commands. Obey him. His rule and reign is not like a dictatorship. It's not a dictatorship. His law, as 1 John 5 tells us, his commands are not burdensome. They, they should be, as the psalmist says in one, a delight to our souls. But saints, we make them burdensome. God's commands are not burdensome. We make them burdensome. Because we don't want to obey him. We don't want to do what he commands. We don't want to bow our knee and, and confess with our mouth that this one is the king and rules over my life. Therefore, I am indebted to him. I need to obey him. Friends, we oftentimes have a low view of God's kingship. We oftentimes have a low view of God's kingship. He commands us to forgive in his word. Our response Whenever I'm ready, I'll forgive. He commands us to gather with the saints to worship. Our response, we're offended by some of the church members. So I'm going to stay home. I'm going to attend another church. He commands us to observe the Sabbath. Our response, let's miss morning and evening service to go out to the ball game, have a barbecue, have a picnic, catch up on some sleep. Saints, how dare you? How dare me? How dare all of us disobey the king? How dare all of us? How dare you not consider that he rules over your life? Therefore, you must obey what he commands. Simple as that. There is no, there is no neutral ground in this. You obey him, for he is the king. Just as our Lord is high and lifted up, we are to have a high regard for his commands and for his kingship. May God help us, saints. And lastly, friends, in addition to Isaiah seeing a throne that's high and lifted up, he says at the end of verse 1, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he sees this one who is on the throne, who's high and lifted up, whose train, who the train of his robe fills the temple. And weddings, you might see the bride walking down the aisle and the train of her veil is filling the aisle behind her as she walks. If uh, You can imagine if you've ever seen, i seen this recently, actually looked it up last night, uh, when Princess Diana uh, was going to get married, her the train of her veil was, could probably fill up this entire room. It was so grand and marvelous. And in, in ancient Near East saints, to, to give us more of a historical context, a king's greatness would be displayed by the length of his train. Did you hear that? A king's greatness would be displayed by the length of his train. 
And here we see the greatness of our Lord, the supreme greatness of our Lord as the train of his robe filled the temple. What a sight that would have been to see. There are some that believe that this should be interpreted as only the hem and the fringes of his train, of the robe of his train, filled the temple. And I actually like that and prefer that interpretation better. Only the hem of the robe of his train filled the temple. The fringes filled the temple. Whatever interpretation you take, saints, the truth is this, that our Lord is immense. Our Lord is immense. He is omnipresent. He can't be contained or confined. There is nowhere where he's restricted from. Our Lord fills the heavens and the earth. The earth can't contain God. The heavens can't contain God. It's not as if God is everywhere on the earth, but he's really there in heaven. Saints, heaven is creaturely. Heaven is on our side of the creator-creature distinction. The Lord is not all there in heaven, for no place can contain him. For if there was a place that could contain the Lord, then that place that contains the Lord would be on par with the Lord, would be God itself. There was only one God. Creation is not God. Heaven is not God. We are not God. There was only one God. And saints, we must confess that, all, that even though, or uh, although that, uh, that the Lord cannot be contained in the heavens and the earth, we, all, we must also confess that the Lord cannot be contained with what we say with our mouths and with our speech. To go a little bit deeper, that just a, play, a physical place can't contain the Lord. No, can our, our words can capture who he really is. The heavens and the earth can't contain God, nor can our thoughts or speech of him. Our Lord is always deeper than our deepest thought of him. He's always higher than our highest thought of him. The finite cannot comprehend and fully describe infinitely the infinite. And this vision of the hem of the Lord's train filling the temple shows us how great and grand our God truly is. This is the God whom you serve. The one whose, whose fringes of his, the train of his robe fills the temple. And saints, this once again is a fitting description of who our God is. One who is grand, one who's great, one who is immense, omnipresent, who is sovereign, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I might have said that was the last sub point. Uh, this is actually the last sub point. <laughs> I told you I was going to mess this up. <clears throat> the last sub point, the worshipers of the vision. The worshipers of the vision. As if this, this vision couldn't get more grand. Isaiah sees something else too. Look at verses 2 through 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Above who? Above God. Above the Lord stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Again, another reason for us to pause and be 
in all of what we just read. Saints, I don't know if you've got it by now, but you are now getting a limited access to what's now going on in heaven. God is pulling back the curtains and pulling the veil back to show Isaiah and show all of us what heaven is really like. In these verses, saints, there are many things we can observe. But just to point out a view, we read Isaiah sees these holy angels named seraphim. You might ask, what is a seraphim? ever heard of a seraphim before well the word seraphim means burning ones burning ones either every other place it's used in scripture it refers to fiery serpents but here and only here it refers to a special order of angelic beings these are holy angels these are holy angels these seraphim are holy angels now We don't know how many Isaiah saw, which makes us even more (laughs) remarkable. Isaiah didn't name how many he saw, but we do have a description of what these holy angels look like. Each angel had six wings. With two, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they flew. And saints, once again, We see a truth of our Lord portrayed by the vision of these holy angels. This is another description of who our God is. Through the revelation of these holy angels, through these seraphim, notice that these seraphim use their wings, use two of their wings to cover their face and cover their feet. They are flying around the Lord, yet they dare not look at the Lord. They dare not have their feet exposed to the Lord. For they are humble. They're humble angels. Saints, this is a testament to the brightness and glory of God. The glory of God and who our God is in and of himself. The the reason why these seraphim had to cover their faces and feet was for their own protection from the Lord. Our God is so grand. He's so bright. He's so brilliant. He's so glorious that one side of the Lord will overpower these holy angels and kill them. That's who our God is. Calvin said, the covering of these holy angels show plainly enough that even angels, even angels, saints, holy angels, cannot endure God's brightness. And they that they are dazed by it in the manner as when we attempt to gaze upon the radiance of the sun, You can't look upon the sun for too long. Probably not even for a second. Well, we can take that analogy and we can stretch it even more when we consider the glory of God. Our God, saints, is brilliant. He's bright. He's glorious. As James said, our God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. First John tells us that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. What we see from the covering of these holy angels is the brightness and the glory of our Lord on display. But we also see, saints, the holiness of our Lord on display. We see the glory of our God on display, but we also see the holiness of our God on display. 
as these seraphim flew around the throne of God. Notice the honor. Notice the reverence. Notice the song that they sing. What comes from their mouths? Verse 3 and 4, And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Saints, when we read these verses, we aren't to be struck with the anatomy of the seraphim and say, man, these are some weird creatures we are, are, are reading about. But rather, we should be struck with what comes from their lips. Not who they are, but what they are saying. The seraphim, as they fly around the throne of God, sing to one another this one message. God is holy. God is holy. And notice, saints, the strong emphasis on the holiness of God. In our modern ways of speaking, we, when we want to communicate something and put more emphasis on it, we, we underline the word or uh, we use italics or we, we write it in bold print or we use endless exclamation parts. Well, the Jews have their own ways of communicating something uh, with strong emphasis, and that is they would use repetition. They would use repetition when they wanted to get something and they emphasized and they wanted the reader to, to really focus on what they're saying. They would use repetition. Saying the same thing twice. But saints, only in the rarest occasions do we see this Hebrew device elevated to the third degree. They say things twice. But only on the rarest occasions do they say things three times. The Bible doesn't say God is holy. God is holy, holy. But God is holy, holy, holy. As R.C. Sproul would say, the Bible doesn't say God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. But God is holy, holy, holy. And saints, you must note that The Bible isn't primarily highlighting the attribute of God's holiness in and of itself. But rather, uh, or we don't worship the holiness of God. We worship the God who is holy. We don't worship God for his attributes. We worship God for who he is, who, who has these attributes in and of himself. We never attempt to elevate these attributes, apart from who the God of the attributes are, is. And saints, when we, when we say that God is holy, we aren't to think that just, this just means that God is sinless, for although it does mean that to a certain degree, or we can think that he is more pure than others, for it does mean that to a certain degree. But here in this context, we are to see that holiness means much more than sinlessness and purity for remember that these seraphim they're holy angels so if it was if holiness just meant sinlessness and purity then these whole these angels are that as well why would they cover their feet and why would they cover their eyes but saints when we think about the holiness of god we don't think of this vast chasm this wide gap that exists between the creator and his creation To say that God is holy is to say that God is separate from his creation, is to say that God is unique, with no rivals, with no competition. This is whom you serve. Our Lord is not a super angel, nor is he a divine version of man, but rather he's 
holy other than all of his creation. He is unique in the covering of the eyes and the covering of the feet and the affirmation of God's holiness by these flying seraphim who are holy in their own right. Reveal to us, reveal to Isaiah this vast gulf that exists between men, holy angels and God. There is a wide gap that exists between us, holy angels and God. Saints, God's holiness is so great. His separation from his creation, too infinite. And his moral excellence is so bright that even those who are holy in their own right must cover their faces, must cover their feet. And lastly, saints, as we close, notice the effects of the seraphim praise. Uh, verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the, and the house was filled with smoke. If the seraphim's voice is enough for the thresholds to shake, them singing holy, 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 if that is enough for the thresholds to shake, imagine what the voice of our Lord would do. The whole building would collapse. And saints, as we close this point, I hope I emphasize enough and I hope you see this God whom Isaiah saw. Saints, this is the God whom you serve. Sometimes we need to go back to the ABCs and be reminded of who our God really is. Our God is the king. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler of all. He reigns everlasting. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is the king of kings who is unrivaled in his majesty, whose glory is infinitely weighty, who's holy, holy, holy. Now, saints, let's move to our last point. That is Isaiah's response. Isaiah's response. After Isaiah has seen this marvelous vision of, the, of, this, of, of God and who he is, let's, uh, we read in verse 5 his response to this grand and great vision. But before we read Isaiah's response, saints, I want to ask you something. If you were in Isaiah's shoes, what would you say? If it was you who saw this marvelous vision of the Lord, what would your response be? What would you say? It was asked to actor, comedian, and atheist Stephen Fry what he would say if he was confronted by God. Hear this. Fry's response, I would say, bone cancer in children. What is that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery? That is not our fault. It is not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. The famous evolutionary biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins says, was asked the same. What would you say if you met God? His response, well, I would ask God, which one are you? Are you Zeus? Are you Baal? Are you Yahweh? And why did you take great pains to conceal yourself and hide yourself from us? The audacity of these atheists. The band Mercy Me, who says in their song, I can only imagine, many of you probably have this on your uh, iTunes or, or uh, iPods. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or my, to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Friends, what would you do? 
what would you say? Would you attempt to put God on trial like the atheist and unbeliever? Would you be unsure of what would you would do like, like the lyrics of Mercy Me says? Would you dance, sing, stand, fall, be in awe? What would you do? Truthfully, saints, you wouldn't have any of those reactions. None of those would be your reactions. Our response to God would be a lot like Isaiah's response to God. Look at verse 5, saints. And I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Saints, there is an improper response to a vision of God and who he is. And there is a proper response to a vision of God and who he is. And this, saints, in verse 5, we see a proper response to who God is. This response from Isaiah is how we all will respond that one day when we meet the king. This is what we will say. The atheists will shut their mouths. The Christians will fall on their face and repeat the words of Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost. What a humbling response this is from the prophet Isaiah. After seeing this bright and glorious vision of the Lord, he then contemplates saints, his own sinfulness and his own creatureliness. Woe is me, for I am lost. Other translations might say, for I am ruined, for I am undone. This speaks of how powerfully Isaiah was affected by the vision of the Lord. You see, saints, although this vision of the Lord was in many ways glorious and majestic, it was also terrible and frightening. Isaiah didn't look at this vision of the Lord and say, I need to take a picture of this. He was terrified. He was frightened by this vision of the Lord. This vision of the Lord for Isaiah in many ways was the worst day in his life. Isaiah's response to God wasn't to start singing hallelujah. He didn't feel the urge to dance. He wasn't shook in awe. Rather, he was terrified. He was scared out of his mind. When Isaiah said, woe is me, this is not to be understood as Isaiah repenting and asking for forgiveness. Rather, this is Isaiah pronouncing judgment upon himself. You don't have, I don't have to wait for God to judge me, but this is me pronouncing judgment upon myself. Isaiah, at this one moment, for the very first time, saints, understood who God was and who he was. And saints, in order for us to have a proper view of who we are, we must first have a proper view of who our God is. As Calvin says, it is evident that man never obtains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. And this is us, for such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves just, upright, wise, holy, until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. In light of this vision of the Lord, Isaiah examines himself and he comes to the conclusion that he's not even worth living. Saints, this is what it means for Isaiah to say, I am lost. Woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. Isaiah is saying, I am utterly destroyed that even though I'm still breathing, it is as if I have ceased 
from who, from my body and who I am. Isaiah's response to the vision of the holiness and the glory of God's saints should be our response when the preached word goes forth every Lord's day. This should be our response. That yes, I'm aware that every Lord's day you're not confronted with a vision like Isaiah had. I understand that. But you are confronted with the glory of God through the preached word. And as we go through Genesis, each Lord's Day, we're confronted with God's glory in preserving the seed of the woman through Abel, through Noah, and will soon be introduced to Abraham. As we're going through First Peter, each Lord's Day, we're confronted with the glory of God and the Father and the Son giving us the Holy Spirit in order that we may endure sufferings and hardships. Each Lord's Day, saints, we may not have an encounter with God the same way Isaiah did. But through the priest's word, in many ways, we have an encounter with God. Every single Lord's Day, when this book is open, when it's preached faithfully, we see God for who he is. Every Lord's Day, saints, God meets with his people in a special manner every Lord's Day through the hymns we sing, through the scriptures we read, through the prayers we pray, through the preached word, God is present. He's here right now, spiritually. Every Sunday evening, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, Christ is spiritually in our midst. We fellowship with our risen and ascended Lord in a unique and special manner. And saints, as one who is called to guard you spiritually, I must say that we need to take serious the preached word. We need to take serious the Lord's Supper and what actually happens through the preached word in the Lord's Supper. And if you understood that, you would never miss Sunday evening. You would never miss Sunday morning. You would prepare yourself Saturday night for what's going to happen Sunday morning. Saints, We must take serious what happens when the word goes forth. When the word goes forth, our God is here. Don't miss Sunday evening, saints. Don't miss the opportunity for you to fellowship with Christ and feast on his body spiritually. If you don't have a reason that's out of works of necessity or acts of mercy. Then you're lazy. You might say, well, that sounds harsh and that sounds extreme. That's just truth, saints. And as you're as the one who's to guard you spiritually, it pains me to say this. But we must take serious the word of God and the gathering of the saints. We must take serious what he says. We must, saints, fear his judgment. Each Lord's Day, delight in the means of grace the Lord from his throne of grace distributes to the hearts of his people. Take serious that, saints. Take serious that. In addition to Isaiah pronouncing judgment upon himself, he says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We don't know exactly what Isaiah is referring to here, but the overall message is clear, saints. We don't know what Isaiah says here and what he's meaning, but 
the message is clear that unclean lips are a result of an unclean heart. Unclean lips are a result of an unclean heart. This vision of the Lord did more than just reveal to Isaiah who God was. Saints, it revealed to Isaiah who he was. And saints, this is the case each time someone has an encounter with God. They suddenly realize who God is and who they are. And saints, my question I have for you is when is the last time you considered who you are in the sight of holy God? When was the last time you considered? We can, can get so bound up in exploring the depths of theology, exploring the depths of trying to read the entire Bible and know all the things that we can. But when's the last time you read something like Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, and then dropped to your knees and examined yourself? Sometimes, saints, we can think just because we are in union with Christ, we no longer need to cling to the cross. Saints, just because you are saved by grace alone doesn't mean that you are ever to graduate from throwing yourself at God's mercy seat and throne of grace. That doesn't mean that. It means that every single day you throw yourself at God's mercy seat and throne of grace. You are united to Christ by faith. Praise God. But remain cleaned and under the feet of the cross. Never leave there. Never forsake there. We need to constantly seek forgiveness and constantly examine ourselves in light of God's word. And the knowledge that we have acquired of our Lord is to cast us down, saints, and humble us. And after the sermon preached, how often do we go about our Lord's day not giving one thought of the glory of God through the preached word and the examination of our own lives? You might understand all the things that the preacher says, but you should understand one thing, who God is and who you are. That should be enough. If you want more, listen to the podcast. We were to take pause as Christian saints. What's the last time you did that? Take pause as Christians. We were to pray that the sermon each Lord's Day will bring you to a place like Isaiah, where you examine yourself and explore the inner depths of your own soul. Pray that God's word will bring you low so you can cry out to God, cleanse me, clean me, make me anew. Saints, we need to at times echo Isaiah's examination of himself. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst of a people of unclean lips. And saints, lastly, let's see the reason behind the prophet's alarming assessment. The ending of verse 5 says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This all comes full circle. Why is Isaiah feeling such way? Because he saw the king. He saw the vision of the king. Isaiah, while reflecting on his own worthlessness, he remembers how this self-examination was brought about. And although this vision for Isaiah was a glorious and terrifying one, saints, it was a reassurance of who his Lord is. Let's remember, saints, 
that this vision of the Lord was seen after the year that King Uzziah died. After the year that King Uzziah died. One who was on the throne at age 16, reigned for 52 years, who was for the most part beloved by, by his people, a great king, ended miserably, but a great king. He's now dead. He's dead. The city is in grieving. They're trying to move on with their lives. Don't know the, 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 what the future says for their nation. Then Isaiah sees a vision. In the midst of catastrophe, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of just bearing the, this king that reigned for 52 years, Isaiah sees the king. He sees the king. King Uzziah is dead. But our Lord is alive. And saints, this should be of great encouragement for you. That it doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office. God's on the throne. It doesn't matter who the super elite are of the day. God is on the throne. We don't need to worry about so-called secret societies who are trying to rule the world. Saints, there is only one ruler. There's only one king. And last time I checked in my Bible, God will have the victory in the end. God is the king. He was on his throne September 11th. He was on his throne when Hitler rose to power. He was on his throne when Donald Trump became president. He was on his throne when your baby died in infancy. He was on his throne when your mama was diagnosed with breast cancer. He was on his throne when you got that bad report from the doctor. He was on his throne, saints, when you lost your job, when your marriage started to fall apart, when your daughter or sister or brother stopped coming to church. God was on his throne. Saints, this morning your life might be in chaos, but take solace in the fact and have great news for you, saints. That God is not in chaos. Your life might be messed up. This whole world around us might be messed up. But God is on the throne. His decrees are good. His sovereign rule is good. He is working all things for his glory and for our good. And saints, behind your struggles, behind your fears, behind all of your worries, there stands our glorious, majestic, and sovereign God. Never forget that, saints. Never forget that. And in closing, saints, the one application I have is this. Behold your God. Behold your God. This is the God whom I present to you this morning, saints. Not the God who wishes you were his friend. Not the God who feels your pain when you sin. Not the big grandpa in the sky. But the king who sits on a throne, whose, whose hem of the train of his robe fills the temple, the sovereign king who knows all, who's most powerful, simple, without body parts or passions, most glorious, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach onto, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray.